whether we've got tens of thousands of viewers or 10 viewers. The people we are lucky enough to have spend time with us are important and we should treat them with that respect. Hi, I'm Sean and this is Boss Fight, a podcast about the real life challenges we face and how we overcome them. In some ways, we're all looking for notoriety, attention, or fame. Whether it's just among our peers or on a wider scale, popularity has its perks, but it can also come with some unforeseen consequences. Josh Boykin, founder of Intelligame.us, had to reckon with those consequences when his work hit some explosive growth, as well as coming to terms with the factors that contributed to it. All right, Josh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's uh, I know it's been a while in the making. Thank you for dealing with my ridiculous schedule lately. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also forgetfulness. I have a lot of that. Yeah, <laughs> I've been dragging my feet too. So it's good to get started. So I like to start the podcast off with kind of a chance to get to know you, and um, I like to call that the creative character. So first off, if you were in your own video game world, what would your character class be? Oh, okay. So, you know, it depends on the kind of game. I feel like I have typically rolled support characters in one way or another. I usually, when I was younger, I would roll a paladin. I was like, yeah, I'm the the upstanding, you know, I want to want to do right. And I want to be able to, you know, help my friends, but I also want to be able to go out there and, and fight the fight and tank damage and that kind of thing. And I think as I've gotten older, I still have some of that, but there are aspects of of the the paladin, the holy knight or whatever that don't ring as true to me anymore. And I think part of it is that a lot of times, especially if you're thinking about let, let's talk about like classic D&D, there's this sort of allegiance to a strict code and usually some sort of deity or some other somebody involved in saying like this is the thing that you do this is the way that you show you're attached to this order and i'm really bad at doing other people's things like that's that is what i have found in my in my professional career it is increasingly difficult for me to be like yeah i work for this company and they what they do is what i do it's it's a struggle and so the I think I would probably still roll something akin to support. You know, when I think about like Overwatch, Mercy is one of my, one of my mains. She's a a healer that, you know, flies around the battlefield. She's mainly equipped to heal the rest of the team. That's how she mainly contributes. She can get in there and fire a few shots, but her main goal is to keep everybody else up to par so that they can do the jobs that they're meant to do. And I feel like professionally and personally that's where i spend a lot of my time is trying to trying to create spaces or trying to provide support for people that i feel need it all right yeah you you answered my first uh follow-up question was just like how does that apply to you yeah i i definitely see you in sort of that um that role of sort of like elevating others you know and and creating a community and a team that works better as a whole, as opposed to, you know, focusing on the individual. So it makes complete sense. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. So you definitely see yourself in, in a support role, but you have trouble, I guess, I don't know if morality is the word, but like, I'm just going to go with it, picking up your morality from like a, a group or something, you know, or a doctrine. 
Yeah, I I think one of the things that I find difficult, especially as I get older, is kind of assuming that anybody's got it 100% right. I mean, heck, you know, look at the past four years and you see the, you know, here in the States, uh, the Trump administration has been, I think, just such a, a blotch on this American story, which we increasingly find out was already incredibly blotchy. And I think, honestly, that's that's perhaps part of it is that I, even as a black man who has grown up from a very young age, understanding the inequity that this country offers, the danger that it provides to people who experience marginalization, to people who are poor, to people who are are in any number of ways not what this con- what this country considers ideal. Like that's not new knowledge to me. And even so, over the past four years, I've been continually disappointed. I won't always say surprised because there's some things you just expect. But at the same time, you look at this last election and you still have over 70 million people who voted for a continuation of this administration and its policies. And it becomes very difficult for me as somebody who is is trying to focus on the idea of like, how do you bring more people together? To me, a 51% vote is not good enough. A 51% vote of the thing that I want is not sustainable. It's not creating a situation in which people will feel like their needs are being met. It provides a space for 49% of people to feel resentment for another four years. There are many things about the last few years that I'm like, this is outright unacceptable and it doesn't, it's not okay. What all of this kind of boils down to to me is what are the things that I can do? What are the things that I can control? What are the things that I can change to start trying to slide that from 51% to 52 to 60 to 65? What am I not understanding? What am I not, what am I not hearing? What am I not communicating to help people understand? Like when we have discussions about progressive policies, people uh, somebody actually was just talking about uh, AOC did an Among Us stream this past weekend, and I believe it was uh, Jagmeet Singh from the uh, New Democratic Party in Canada was talking about in Florida, which electorally voted red, there were more people who voted for progressive policies like a $15 minimum wage than people who voted for either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Progressive policies are popular, but progressive candidates can be a sticking point for a number of people in in regions that are not Portland, that are not Minneapolis, that are not Madison. So like, what are the things that I can control? What are the things that I can do to help people better understand and trust the, the ways in which I think we need to make spaces better? And so in that light, I'm sorry, it takes me a long time to answer short questions. <laughs> uh, in that respect, it makes it difficult for me to sign on to any one person's line or prescription of of rhetoric or thought if I'm seeing so many people who aren't seeming to comprehend the message. And so it's it's those kinds of things that make it very difficult for me to sign on somebody else's line and say, yep, I'm going to roll with you. I want to be able to have that ability to 
to say like, oh, I think maybe we need to adjust a little bit here. Maybe there's something we need to learn here. And if this if this institution is too big, um, then it will be more resistant to change and to recognizing new intricacies of uh, of whatever the current moment is. Yeah, definitely. There's so much that can be done on a policy level, like it's like separate from these candidates, because it does feel like, like you said, like so many people are willing to sign on to progressive ideas and progressive policies, but something about voting for the other side or or voting for that specific person. And maybe it's because it comes with a package and there's just these non-negotiables that come along with that. Like there's so many people that will vote on a single issue and like that decides who they vote for and that's it. But like when it comes to a policy, they can bend a little bit, you know? Okay, that was great. Uh, I do want to get back on track with the uh, creative character a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> so like a paladin or a support character, something like that. What do you think your special skill or ability would be? And also kind of try to tie this into the, the real world a little bit, you know, into yourself. Yeah. I think when I roll characters that are paladins, I don't, I generally try to make them more talkers than fighters. And I think that I would probably have a similar ability. I would love to have like, there's an ability that I have where within a certain uh, area of effect that I can you know, give a rousing speech and then like heal people for a certain amount of not necessarily physical uh, damage. I don't, I don't know that that's possible, but maybe like, here's how you get your MP back or here's a focus bonus that you get on your future roles. If I liken it to reality, I think one of the skills that I have been lucky to cultivate over time is that I can talk a whole lot without getting a lot of external input. And sometimes people feel like those words are relevant to their lives. So that I, I think is something that I would I would consider an ability. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's definitely an ability and it's, it's one that you use to great effect. So I can, I can get on that. <laughs> All right. On the flip side, every character has to have some sort of glaring weakness, right? So what, what do you think your weakness would be? Your blind spot, your, your vulnerability? Lack of focus. I think as, a, as I've gotten older and I, I have not been uh, medically diagnosed, so I'm not going to be, I'm not going to suggest that people run around and say that they have a thing without, you know, medical proof. That said, uh, there are a lot of aspects of ADHD that as I am getting older, I am like, I think this might be a thing that I'm dealing with. I have actually also asked friends who are like, oh, did you not know that that was a thing for you? I knew that was a thing for you 10 years ago. I, I thought you'd already seen a doctor. So for me, it has always been a struggle to stay on one thing and to, if this is something that it's like, oh, this is going to take, you know, a year of consistent action to do if this is going to take eight weeks of consistent action to do it's tough and so those are i think some of the places where i struggle and i would consider that to be uh you know if i it was a character flaw it's like yeah if this is going to be a action that's taken over time your ability to deliver on that could be a little difficult i completely feel you there i'm actually um I'm kind of in the same boat. I've looked into, you know, symptoms of, of ADHD and things, and um, I'm very certain I have it. In fact, I had a teacher <laughs> who told my parents that she thought I had it when I was when I was younger, and um, they kind of brushed it off. They thought I was just being wild or whatever, you know. And um, I'm in the process of trying to get it formally diagnosed, which is in itself way more difficult than it should be. It's incredibly 
frustrating. But I'm not also I'm not really sure what the like official diagnosis would even get me if I'm on the fence about whether or not I would even care to like take medication for it. So mm-hmm. just, I guess it's just sort of like the validation of knowing, okay, I, I, I have this thing. Now I can, I guess, pr- properly look into how to cope with it, though nothing about the diagnosis is going to you know prevent me from doing that. I could cope with it now, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think for me, like I can understand a sort of like resistance to medication because I've, 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 I also am just like, well, wait a second. I've, and I've always, I think when I was younger, I had had a, a middle school guidance counselor ask me about like depression stuff. And I was like, well, I'm afraid to, I don't know that I want to like take a medication because I don't want it to like change who I am or whatever. Um, and so it was never something that I really looked into, even though it is something I probably do deal with and could stand at. And actually that's, that's where this conversation ties into is that eventually um, a few years ago, I ended up being prescribed a medication for sleep that also is a minor antidepressant. It was originally supposed to be designed as an antidepressant. And then people were like, it's not that great at it, but it's actually better at making you sleep. And so what I ended up finding is that like, I don't feel like I am different, but I I feel like the way that I am in the world, uh, my attention is different. And I have, and I notice the difference between when I'm on and when I'm off that medication. To me, it actually kind of made me more comfortable with the idea of if I am diagnosed with ADHD taking that medication, because it it doesn't feel like it fundamentally changes who I am, but it does help me better, better understand why people get so frustrated when there's stuff that I can't do, because it's I, I think it's actually easier for them to do it. Like the concept of, well, you wrote this goal down in your in your to-do list. Why can't you just do it? Oh, why can't you just wake up a half hour earlier? Why can't you just do this for the next three weeks? And like, you don't understand what a struggle this is, but it's that they don't understand what a struggle it is because it's not a struggle for them. It's not a struggle in the same way. And I'm kind of okay with like, maybe seeing what it's like to take off some of those training weights. You know? Yeah. 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 I'm definitely not opposed to the idea of it. I guess it's sort of a, um, the pros and cons of it, you know, like I think every medication is going to have some side effects and it's hard to, absolutely. I guess it's hard to know what those are going to be until you try it. I don't know for me, like ADHD, what I presume to be that like feels like it's a big a big hurdle in my life. And if I had something that was able to remove that, it feels like it would be a big benefit. At the same time, it's hard to also quantify what ways maybe the the different ways that your your brain functions may be helping you too, you know? Totally. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm I'm definitely not like opposed to the medication. It's just sort of a matter of like there's there's options both ways, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think there's still there's also a space for like it's it's like recognizing that it's a tool, right? It's not a cure. So you would still, I I would imagine, you know, even alongside taking medication, like you're still talking, you know, like you're talking about their coping mechanisms and, you know, all sorts of ways that you have to adapt to these situations that you'd still have to put into place, even with medication involved. And I think, you know, based on the, the level at which something is interfering with your activities of daily living, that kind of shapes, like like you said, whether or not that's something you want to dive into. I think that's totally reasonable. It's it's something I I question myself. All right, cool. Well, I think that's uh, that's it for our creative character. I feel like we we did get to know you really well there. 
<laughs> and I wanted to just jump into a couple of questions first. So I think yeah, you've sure. actually been streaming this recently, so it's like perfect timing. But you talked about in high school presenting a literary, literary analysis of Final Fantasy IV. Yep. And I'm, I'm curious, what was it about that game that resonated with you so strongly? And also, um, I think you talked about a specific scene, if you could kind of lay that out for us. Yeah, sure. So Final Fantasy IV is the first game that I remember playing that had a concrete story. When I was younger, I enjoyed like fantasy novels and animorphs and was a super voracious reader, like many gamers I know who are not as voracious readers anymore. <laughs> but even though I've, I've been gaming since I was literally a baby, I never had played a game that really roped me into the idea that you could tell a story through a video game. You know, I had played all sorts of side-scrolling beat-em-ups and fighting games and and I was I was intrigued about this medium as an entertainment space, but I wasn't there was something about this particular game, especially like Final Fantasy 2 as it was released in the Super on the Super Nintendo like imagine for folks who might be a little younger and haven't and didn't have this experience, you know, usually my dad would take me to this video rental chain and you have you're walking in this giant store with just boxes, rows of boxes of VHSs and game cases and you you know pick which one you want and take it up to the counter and then give you the actual game. And Final Fantasy II, as it was called, which is Final Fantasy IV, actually, in Japan and, and now, as people would know it, uh, has this really generic-ass red box with a glowing sword in the middle. It was not particularly compelling to look at from the front. And I flipped it over on the back, and I think I remember reading something about there being a story there. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll try it, because it was a five-night rental for, two, for $2. So there were some that were really expensive and some that were really cheap. And then I played this game and was like, wow, I'm going to get up at like five o'clock in the morning so I can play this before school and then play <laughs> it again when I get home. Because there were scenes like this one where when the game starts, you're playing as Cecil, a dark knight in the employee of the kingdom of Baron. And he is leading this group of essentially like elite military folks who have airships that like nobody else in the world has. And he's leading them in these charges around the world to steal these crystals that are being kept by other countries. And so they had just gone to this kingdom and taken their crystal by force. And Cecil starts to feel kind of guilty about it. He's like, they didn't even put up a fight. Like, we're these are innocent people. Why are we taking what they have? And so he talks to the king and the king's like, yo, if, if you're not down with the cause, then get the f out, you know? And so he ends up exiling Cecil to like go run this mission to deliver a package to some random village in a far off land. And so the night before he is supposed to go and start on this mission, he is like walking up to his, he's walking up to his bedroom and feeling all depressed and whatnot. And his, I, I'd say his girlfriend, uh, Rosa, encounters him in this sort of walkway space and is like, I'll, I'll meet you later to talk about it. And they end up having this conversation in his bedroom where he's like, I just, I just feel essentially he says, I feel guilty. I don't, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do about this. And Rose is like the Cecil I know wouldn't like, wouldn't fall on himself like this. He would, he would find an action. He would push through, he would do something about it. 
And so Cecil ends up saying like, yes, I'll, I'll, you know, go through, I'll go with Kane, you know, his best friend to go and deliver this package. But, you know, as Rosa leaves, he says, but I'm still just a dark knight. The game ends up being this discussion about sort of what it means to recognize when you've done wrong and to try and do better. And I, I just was so compelled by that scene being in the first, you know, 20, 30 minutes of the game that I felt like I had to talk to it and <laughs> talk about it to a group of folks who probably had never played that game before and thought it was really weird to see it in their high school English class. But uh, to me, those are the kinds of spaces that the games can create. And I'm really thankful I learned that in an early age because it honed my focus working in games moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. Again, short questions, long answers. No, Sorry. No, no, no. That is, is perfect. So first I want to say, like, I can see the relation to that game story and how it resonates with you with um, how we opened this podcast up, which was like talking about, you know, deriving your morality or whatever from an organization or, you know, a structure. And um, it sounds like that's kind of the struggle that, that Cecil is going through at the beginning there, too. Right. Yeah, I, I actually, I guess I hadn't really thought about it that way, it, but it, it very much is a, I liken it almost to the allegory of the cave and the paradox that comes as a result. The allegory of the cave being, a, I think it was Socrates, it might've been Plato or Aristotle, one of those three, I don't know right, we'll who, keeps them, who keeps track of them that didn't <laughs> major in, I don't know. But anyway, it's this idea that like, you know, there's a, a person that's like chained to a wall and all they can, or they're, they're like chained up. They can't move their head from looking at a wall. And all they can see are shadows that are on the wall being cast from a fire that's behind them. And so since all you see are the shadows, you think that the shadows are reality. And then eventually somebody comes in and like breaks the chains and you find out, oh, wait a second. These are actually just shadows. There's this whole different world, right? And then you end up going outside of this cave and you see like, oh my gosh, it's the world, you know? And so you come back to try and talk to your friends who are still chained up looking at the wall and you're like, no, this is, this is the world. And they're like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Like it's outside of my lived experience, right? So then what do you do as somebody who is now walking around outside of that cave? At what point do you become comfortable with the idea that like, yep, this is all the stuff that there is to know. There's not another cave that I'm going to walk out of. There's not a, you know, another mind blowing. This is going to upset my, my understanding experience. Right. And so Cecil as a dark knight working in, you know, for the kingdom of Baron doing whatever it is they tell him to do. He has a very limited perspective. It's not until he starts to understand some of the pain that he's dealing and also recognizing the the lack of concern that the king has like Cecil is like supposed to be essentially like a, a right hand man to the king when he has this discussion. And so like he's, you know, I, I imagine should I write fan fiction of it? Right. That like he's climbed the ranks from the beginning. The king knows him personally, you know, and he comes up and is like, look, like I kind of feel like this is a little weird. And then the dude's like, oh, you don't like it? Then get out. Like what a pain that would be to be like, this is the one time that I am expressing because he's not even saying like, King, you're a terrible person. And this kingdom is whatever. It's a much more patient kind of discussion and he just gets thrown out. And so to me, spoilers, when Cecil becomes a paladin, which is fairly early on, uh, but when Cecil becomes a paladin, it is less about him adhering to a strict moral code of this is what this order tells me I have to do. 
it really is about him responding to the needs of the people around him and the communities that he's opted to serve. And perhaps that's why, to me, the Final Fantasy IV Paladin is much more preferable than the Dungeons and Dragons Paladin, because it's not about this is the the god to whom I, you know, give my fealty. It's this is the way that I have decided that I am prioritizing the health and welfare and safety of the people around me and the people that I'm able to protect, which is reading a little deep into Final <laughs> Fantasy four. But again, I've been playing this game since high school. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a lot to read in there. I think with Final Fantasy games in particular, I think the stories themselves are usually pretty deep, but I've been reading some like retrospectives on them. And a lot of these games have a lot more depth than we actually give them credit for. Cause sometimes there's these, I don't know, like, books you can read or like just npc dialogues that hint at this like larger story you know mm-hmm. even though the the central stories can be pretty epic there's usually even like more going on around the surface totally it's really hard to develop a moral system when you're not really allowed to ask questions right and that sounds like cecil get kind of gets punished for even questioning not like saying what we're doing is wrong but like questioning the reason that they're doing it in the first place you know and mm-hmm. uh I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. It's like, I think that pushes people away more often. It's just to say like, no, the way that we're doing things is the right way to do it without giving people the space to ask questions or to, to explain the motives behind what, why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. I think that's a struggle that I often see in progressive circles and is a struggle that I, I would say as a, as somebody who runs what I would like to consider a progressive circle through IntelliGame is, is something I've mirrored personally. There's a a balance that you have to strike between it's kind of like if you're creating a college class, there's a difference between a 101 level course, right? Like a freshman level, you just got here, let's give you the basics course and an advanced level senior thesis, like whatever, because the, the idea with the senior thesis is that like, I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of backstory because you already know it. And so now we have the opportunity to take these deeper dives to do you know, heavier analysis. And in creating a community like IntelliGame, on one hand, I want there to be a space where people who essentially like already get it, you know, for people who are like already into progressive policies and like care about social justice and and diversity. And I don't have to explain why diversity is important, right? Like you want, I want there to be a space where those people feel comfortable and feel like they're growing and that we all have an opportunity to learn. The other piece that I do struggle with, though, is that I feel like there are not as many spaces on the internet where people can encounter progressive policies for or, or progressive ideals for maybe the first time and ask questions that folks can get genuinely frustrated by hearing because they're like, you know, like you can you can look this up on Google. You, you know, the tools are available. Why aren't you doing the basic legwork? And I feel like I often struggle between how do how do I curate a space that feels comfortable for both of those people? And I often think that one of the things that I think is difficult is that I think that a lot of times IntelliGame does cater more towards people who may be a little newer in their discussion. And I think that that has made it a less appealing space for some people who I really respect, but who are not in a place where they are up for having those kinds of discussions because they they're emotionally draining 
You know, when we ran our fundraiser for the Minnesota Freedom Fund earlier this year, and, you know, it is incredibly tiring to have to cut yourself open and tell these stories of personal trauma and pain and fear to help people understand how pressing it is to take action. You know, when George Floyd was murdered and we were sitting here and I'm and I'm doing a just chatting stream. I don't have other people to riff with. Right. Like there's there's a text chat. And I know that I have a community of people who I really rely on and trust. But the fact of the matter is that essentially for hours, I'm monologuing about my experiences with, you know, police brutality, not not physically, thankfully, but certainly emotionally. I mean, you know, I'm talking about about racism and getting the talk from my you know parents at an early age like that stuff sucks and frankly i think it's totally within people's rights if they're like i don't want to be in a position where people think i'm going to have that discussion with them i don't want to be in a space where that has to be around and i think that that you know if they end up finding other communities that are more suitable to them then that's cool but i i think that one of the ways that i feel like i can make a difference in ways that some other people who, again, I really respect and use them as a, as a, a guiding post to how I shape my work. One of the ways that I feel like I can do work in ways that others might not is to be able to run some of those freshman level classes to integrate some advanced theory. I think that we obviously, and, and to be totally clear, like the folks in the Intelligame community, I think, are very much progressively minded, are helping me steer conversations that I don't know folks would be exposed to if they were in other gaming communities um, and helping me learn all the time, too. So this is not a, oh, everybody just walks in and asks, what's diversity? But we do make a space where if somebody is asking those questions, I think that they're treated with a with a kindness and an understanding at the beginning that I don't think every community provides. And I frankly can think of people for whom I think that having that space maybe helped them become more progressive, become like have a better understanding of of taking on some of these social policies that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. And I'm really proud of that. So yeah, to me, I think you need to have some flexibility. That is probably why I started Intelligame is because I don't really want to have to ask answer to other people when it's like, why are you doing this thing? This isn't what our organization does. And I'm like, well, it is because I run it. So it's, yeah, maybe it's a, a little megaloma, a megalomaniacal, but yeah, it's, it's what I've ended up feeling comfortable with. I think you serve a really important part in that space of like, yes, Google is free. And that's like, I think people do need to do their own research, but at the same time, nobody's going to do that unprompted. And I think you allow the space for them to kind of almost decide whether they can cultivate an interest in this, you know, whether this is something like, especially if they either had no exposure to some of these progressive ideas at all, or had been like raised to believe that they're like evil or ridiculous or completely like unfounded, you know, it's like there, there does need to be a certain level of like understanding that there's maybe there's more to this here than I had originally thought rather than just being pushed away by other people, you know, you allow the space for them to kind of explore it a little bit. And if, if they suddenly realize, okay, there's more to it here than I originally thought, then 
you know, th then they can do Google or they can join new communities where like they can get exposed to these ideas more. But um, yeah. it's really hard to get to that point if you've, if you, you've never allowed that conversation to happen. Yeah, I actually was thinking about this this past weekend during AOC's stream. Uh, there were some content creators in there where I was like, I don't know why this person is necessarily part of the of the conversation. This seems a little strange. And ended up ta I talked with other friends about it, and they were like, Well, maybe if this streamer is in there, even if we know that they've got a reputation for bad conduct, that you know their members of their audience are going to be hearing you know, these strong progressive voices delivering their messages in ways that like they would not have heard otherwise. They're on this person's channel and maybe they'll be, they'll get a chance to learn and to to be better. And on one hand, I, I get that. But then when I hopped into that chat and I just, I was like, this chat is toxic. It's not taking the conversation seriously. It's also like huge. And, and anybody who's ever taken part in a a Twitch chat that's over like a couple hundred people, if they're active, like you're not participating, you're just joining, you're essentially joining in on whatever the active move is. Imagine being part of a, a crowd at a concert, right? Like if you're one person who like doesn't like the song or you're one person who has something to say, you can yell it as much as you want, but the odds of the rest of the, the crowd responding and moving to that, not particularly high. And that's what happens in a fast moving Twitch chat. Like it's, less words and more just energy. So to me, there's also that idea of like, okay, well, they're hearing these progressive ideals, but if they're not hearing them with a person that's providing a space or a mouthpiece or a focus on digesting those ideas, is it making a space for growth or is it just making a space where those ideas are going to be lambasted? And I don't say that to say that I have the answer. I think that there legitimately could be some people in thousands of people who are like, wow, I'd never heard, you know, I've never heard a minimum wage described this way. I've never, they had discussed, they actually had a discussion about minimum wage and Alana Hazard was talking about how coming over from, or Alana Pierce, I think, uh, I think anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, she was talking about how it, like moving from Australia to the US and seeing that we have like a $6 minimum wage for, for servers. And she's like, that was just appalling because she's like, I'm pretty sure I made $15 when I was like 14 years old working at McDonald's. And it was just like having, I think a lot of people from other countries, we don't understand what things are kind of absurd to others. Just like they don't understand what things are absurd to, like, you know, live in Australia where a place where all the animals want to kill you, except maybe <laughs> the kangaroos, but I don't know. So like oh, the kangaroos, they, uh, they stomp on people's crops. I've heard that before. Uh, yeah. You know, and they wear <laughs> boxing gloves. Yeah. So it's, it is a dynamic situation. It's one that I think we're all actively trying to understand. And I think that it's our responsibility as people who curate communities to understand that like our viewpoints and our priorities as streamers do trickle down into our chats and into our audiences. And so I think it's sort of a, it's a responsibility that we have to understand what the implications of that are, whether we've got, you know, tens of thousands of viewers or 10 viewers or two viewers, those, the, the people that are, we are lucky enough to have spend time with us are important and we should treat them with that respect. Yeah, totally. All right. So after me hounding you for maybe a year you uh finally <laughs> streamed undertale uh, yeah. for the first time blind somehow 
And uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where to start. There were like a, so many great moments there, but um, there there was something you mentioned earlier um, about talk, you know, kind of talking about your you know, special ability, and you just talked about you know the power of talking and of conversation. And this is a game where, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say because I think it's basically the the main premise of it is that that you can get through the game without killing enemies. There, mm-hmm. there may be some question there, but um, and I do want to leave space for some light spoilers. So I'm going to just give a spoiler warning here that there's going to be we'll try not to give like the big pictures, but like there may be some light spoilers talk about Undertale here. But anyway, I, I did want to discuss a little bit about like that basic premise. You know, the like you can just move through this game and and talking to monsters without having to you know fight them really. What was that like to play, especially not really knowing very much about this game? And um, and and then the various ways that it kind of like sort of spins on that in your face as you go. Yeah, gosh, especially playing Undertale in 2020 was, I think, particularly heavy. You know, this is a game developed primarily by Toby Fox, but also with the help of some other great people. It's a turn-based RPG that I think channels a lot of like Earthbound and a lot of other JRPGs where instinctively any creature that you encounter that is not just talking to you, you are supposed to kill so that you can get experience, so that you can level up, so that you can become stronger, so that you can take on whatever the challenges are later on in the uh, In in typical JRPG fashion, right? You know? Exactly. You know, but I think with with Undertale, going into this space where like you're encountering these monsters, there's always a way to like sort of talk your way out of it, whether you are, you know, flirting or flexing or crying or whatever it is. It's it's less about, you know, using the one tactic that you know is going to be effective on everyone, which is beating them into submission. And instead being willing to potentially take damage yourself and instead learn what it is each individual character wants or needs to be able to feel like they can walk away. And sometimes those decisions feel, sometimes they're funny. Sometimes you feel a little foolish. Sometimes I end up doing stuff and I'm like, I don't actually really want to do that. Like, I feel a little ridiculous now that, you know, that I I let the, you win by, you know, catering to this thing that I thought was dumb or that I didn't want to do. But the alternative was to beat you up. And I I guess I'll just go ahead and take it. And the other thing is that like the place where Undertale's central conceit becomes difficult to apply to reality is that most every enemy that you encounter is kind of cute. Like it's, it's easy for you to look at most of these monsters and be able to say like, well, I probably don't want to kill you anyway. It's kind of the big eyed animal effect, right? That we have a lot of animals that we have been more likely to try and save as, as humans to save them as a species because they are cute, not necessarily because they are functional or, or just respecting them as a creature that we save. So there were a lot of spaces though, where even just dealing with the nuance of whether or not this character is cute, I now have to deal with sort of an emotional load of this engagement that I did not expect before. The the very, I'd say the first significant fight that you have with- um, Toriel? Toriel, yes. 
And at that point, because I hadn't done any research, I didn't even look at the the description on Steam that tells you you don't have to kill anybody. Truly, I, truly blind. Yeah, like I, I was like heartbroken at this idea of having to potentially kill this this character who meant so much to me in such a small amount of time. And that is, I give so much credit to Toby Fox and to the other folks who are responsible for writing these characters, because especially as I like dive back into AAA, um, I'm playing Call of Duty Cold War right now through its campaign because I've heard people tell me that it's really good. But there's just nothing like the character development in Undertale that you see in a lot of some of these larger scale games. So there are a lot of emotional beats that I think Undertale really hits home. And I, I, I definitely thank you for like seriously hounding me to play that game. I have, I have honestly, between that and Soma, uh, which was suggested by uh, Mojo Ceratops and, and uh, Firestar, it is like making me rethink the way that I take on games for stream. Because like the games that I prioritize, I'm still interested in, but it has been so amazing to be able to dive into games that the community was really interested in, that it's something I want to do more often because it, it is helpful to kind of prioritize based on the input of other gamers who I know have similar ideas and goals and also know what I'm interested in, you know, and many of you folks have been watching me play games for years. So the suggestions I think have been really on point. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the people that have been following you kind of, they know what kind of games you like, and they also know whatever game you play, you bring an interesting perspective or discussion to. So I think people are like, that, that was me with Undertale was like, I really love and appreciate this game, but like, I'm very curious to see what Josh's perspective is and what he's going to take <laughs> out of this, you know, and the discussion that's going to, you know, come out of it. And, and I, how much I, I think I would it's cry. for the, the next game that I'm looking forward to you playing is uh, Disco Elysium, if you ever get around to yeah, it. Yeah, I really want to play that. It's, I, I, I played it, I played it earlier this year, and I did not play a lot of games this year. It is very easily my game of the year. It is a very good game. <laughs> yeah. And it is right up your alley. I mean, it is like, it is very heavily political. And uh, I don't know, I can't say much more than that, but it, it's a good game. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to head into um, our boss fight section. And for that, I would just like to open the floor and say, is there, you know, a difficult situation or something that you're going through right now, something you've been struggling with lately that you'd, you'd like to, um, to talk about a little bit? Just give you the space for that. Yeah, you know, I uh, we talked a little bit beforehand about what this thing was, and, I, and I'm kind of realizing that I thought that I had a sense of what I wanted to talk about for the boss fight, but I'm realizing it actually stretches a little deeper than that. Originally, my, my boss fight was going to be that over the past few weeks in particular, I've been struggling a lot with sort of like time management and energy management as a result of this new job that I have. Um, I've been working the job for a while on a contract basis. Uh, I work with a company called Dual Wield Studio, uh, like, like holding two weapons, not we have two wheels. And uh, we work primarily on like merchandise. We help small creators get connected with the people and the resources that they need to be able to create the merchandise that they want and to do it in ethical ways. 
We picked up the contract for Innersloth. Uh, we are working, we are the exclusive licensor for, uh, for Among Us merchandise. And when we signed the contract two months ago, it was a big deal game then, but it's not what it is now because, you know, AOC hadn't streamed it twice. Like it, it's the game is a cultural phenomenon at this point. And the struggles that come with being a company that was very small and now all of a sudden has the demands of the entire world on you, it's it is a lot to carry. And I think about that as, you know, I think the the inner sloth team as three people, now four people with the inclusion of, of Victoria Tran, their new communications director. I think that the inner sloth team, this is something that they deal with on a daily basis. And I know it's something that we deal with on a daily basis for as dual wield, um, where we were two people, myself and Rowan Rowden, the, the co-founder and, uh, and owner of the studio. Um, and of course, then a shout out to the other, the other co-owner, uh, Adri, who, uh, is just an awesome person. I want to make sure I say, uh, say hello and thanks to, but we were two people and now we're four people. We have a, an art director, um, Hanako, and we have a business and, a essentially our, our brand and account manager, Ritzy. The four of us are taking on the kind of work that literally multi-million dollar companies take on and are doing it in a timeline that is ridiculous and we're doing it in with holiday rush right around the corner and shipping issues and all of this different stuff there are some days that like i i mean i've worked 70 nearly 80 hour weeks and it's a lot to take on and the the reason why i say i have to go a little bit more macro is because yes that is difficult but i think that the key difficulty is that it leaps a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier, that any sort of large scale change without time for adjustment, I think brings difficulty in a bunch of ways that you don't expect. This is the nature of viral fame, but my big boss fight right now is COVID. Like I, I thankfully have not, at least as far as I know, have not had it myself. I am privileged enough to be in a job where I can work from my home. I'm lucky to be renting a room and a house where there's also an additional room that I have as a dedicated office, that I live with people who are good people. I have more than enough access to food and games and like, and I'm a boring person, so I don't want to go out of the house that often anyway. Like, and, in and many you're in a state that's been handling it pretty responsibly too. And certainly, you know, Oregon compared to some other states, the only other state that I'd really compare to is Illinois. But I think Illinois, actually, particularly for a Midwestern state, has taken on some uh, some pretty significant COVID policies. So, in all those regards, I am particularly lucky in in regards to COVID, even though both of my parents had it fairly early on um, and are thankfully both okay today. But there's this entire level of change that sort of the world is dealing with as a result of COVID. And I find it very difficult to figure out how to process and parse a lot of that. A lot of what I would consider is some of the increased intention and quote unquote success that I've gotten this year is as a result of, I, I, I think that it would be, it would be unreasonable to not think about it in the, in the shadow of the 
murder of George Floyd and the ways that George Floyd, Tatiana Jefferson, Breonna Taylor, you know, so many other black folks who now we regard as hashtags. I think that the there were a lot of people in the game space and all sorts of other media who were like all of a sudden, oh, let's find black people to pay attention to. And I'm glad that people are looking out for folks to pay attention to. But it also is a significant weight to carry to know that like, or to feel like there are these associations that were made in the shadow of this pain. Similarly, there's a, a certain perspective. Somebody had told me they were they were talking about a, a job they had taken on and they were like, well, you know, if it weren't for COVID, I probably wouldn't have this job. Like, cause this thing wouldn't have happened the way that it did. And it was like, that's the thing that I think I'm struggling with right now is so much that I, w- I want to categorize like this, this thing, if I could just say like, this thing is good and this thing is not good and I can focus here and like there to be completely clear for anybody who's listening to this, this is not a space where I'm saying like, well, but maybe COVID's a good thing. Like we, particularly in this country have had over 200,000 people who we have lost as a result of COVID and COVID related complications and a blatant lack of action on the part of our federal government and a number of state governments who are willing to play politics to the point that it costs people their loved ones. And it's abysmal. So please do not misunderstand this discussion. But what I have to deal with on a personal level is the conflict that comes with understanding that a number of the opportunities that I have available to me today, things that I would consider positives and some of the highlights of my professional career come in the specter of death. And I understand that that is how, that is how life works. That is how humanity works, that we take situations and we respond to them and we make the best of them that we can. And hopefully, and that there are sometimes people don't do that. And there are any number of innovations that come from pain, but it is very difficult for me to be able to look at 2020 and see that this is the same year that I got to work with this multi-million dollar game franchise and got to speak on all of these different panels and was also the same year that I was tear gassed by police and have watched videos of my friends being assaulted and watched people who I I thought I knew and trusted talk about the ways that they support an administration specifically for doing the things that are opposite of taking care of the safety and health of people that I care about. Like, it is a continual boss fight for me because it literally permeates virtually every minute of the things that I love and the things that I don't. And I think that is the struggle that comes with 2020 is that we are starting to see so many of the ties and understanding the histories that, you know, the pain historically that this country is founded on when you Look at something like Thanksgiving and now having more discussions about indigenous folks who consider it National Day of Mourning. Like we're seeing the ways that the things that we have to be thankful for are based upon pain and sadness and the sacrifice of others. And that understanding how to deal with that reckoning and what to do to try and make things better in the future, I, I think is perhaps the ultimate boss fight. Wow. Yeah. I got to say, it's really interesting doing a a podcast on this particular topic when 
it does feel like this year in particular, COVID is sort of the the universal boss fight. And I know that's not entirely true because there are countries now that have thankfully like managed to to keep it under control and are mostly back to normal or some sense of normalcy, you know? So so it's not affecting everyone equally, but I think even in those countries, they are impacted by the effects it's having in other parts of the world as well. And it's just, it is, yeah, I don't know that we've ever had something that has affected the entire world in this way. And yet also the ways it, it impacts individuals is so different. Right. Like you said, like there have been some, like some people have just, you know, lost their jobs and then now they've cut off unemployment, you know, benefits and things. And it's like, there, there have been people who are just getting handed, you know, one bad card after another, not to say that it's luck, but you know, just the, the, the incompetence of the way it's been handled. But yeah. um, then, then there's, there's other people like, uh, I feel like 90% of my life has mostly stayed the same. I've been working from home since January. I'm not a very social person. I'm pretty boring you know, kind of like what you're saying. It's like, I, mm-hmm. I, I was in a routine where I'm like, I'm, I'm fine with the way things are now. But even then, after months and months and months of this, I've been really feeling the exhaustion of it, you know? And everyone's dealt with it a little differently, even though it is something that impacts all of us. So <laughs> in some ways, I feel like everyone could say that COVID was their boss fight, but the way the boss fight plays out would be different, you know? Yep. Yeah, it's been a wild year. But um, yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that and bringing that up because it's been a hell of a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I'd love to imagine that 2021 won't be, but I am pretty sure it will. You know, the the thing that I can take as a clear takeaway in all of this is that for many of the communities that I'm a part of and for many of the things that I've been lucky enough to learn I have seen a lot of people who have shown resilience and compassion in the face of like potential devastation. So seeing mutual aid organizations pop up as, you know, the federal government sends troops in to to quell protesters and seeing the ways that people would show up in parks with just like food and water and supplies to take care of people, whether they were actively protesting or just showed up and needed a meal. When the fires were taking place out here in Portland and we were really concerned about whether or not those fires would actually like make their way into Portland proper and obviously still devastated a number of communities outside of Portland, the ways that organizations came together and started trying to provide, you know, housing and shelter and food, the and especially because for that, like a lot of those are rural communities and those are some of the folks in those rural communities are not politically aligned with many of the folks who are here in Portland proper. And still, you know, a lot of those mutual aid organizations were like, nope, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Like at this point, you're a person who needs help. We're helping you. And those are I think it's difficult to understand that on the national political stage, because a lot of the cameras have gone away or because the cameras are more interested in watching fires than watching people help people. It's frustrating to hear some folks talk about their perceptions of Portland, not understanding what is actually happening here. It is tense. It is difficult. There are people who are out there who are protesting night after night after night for for progress and change. There's a lot of, there's damage, there's contention in the ranks, there's all sorts of different stuff. But I do think that there are a bunch of people who recognize that there are ways that they can help themselves and know their neighbors and help, 
the people around them in ways that they didn't understand before COVID. People who were like, oh, I can make masks. Oh, I can deliver food. Oh, I can do these things. The question is, how do we continue to motivate people to take those actions even after the need feels pressing, right? It's easy for us to be like, oh, I should make some masks and I should donate them when like there are no masks and people are not participating in capitalism because like everybody's, you know, everybody's staying at home. But unfortunately, as I had said the other day, capitalism is the opiate of the masses. Like it is very easy to fall into a routine. And it's something that I'm doing myself as I have to work 60, 70 hour weeks. It's a whole lot harder for me to keep up with Twitter and, and know what's happening on protests or make sure I'm donating to the right causes. It's tough. So how do we do it when it doesn't feel as pressing to us? Because it's still pressing to a bunch of folks out there. Like you said, you know, folks who've been getting a bunch of bad cards still need that help. In the next couple of months, we're going to see probably an increased number of evictions taking place as eviction protections are starting to go away. Like, how do we make sure that we are taking care of those people because they're going to need that help, regardless of how comfortable some of us might feel being in a position where we've been able to adjust to this sort of like midst of COVID world um, in a way that is more comfortable and safer for us. Yeah, that's very well put. I would like to try to wrap this up on a little bit of a of a positive note. You mentioned the AOC streams earlier, which they donated or they got was it two hundred thousand to charity? Yeah, I, I can't remember over two hundred thousand dollars. They ended up raising for housing and food insecurity. Yeah, that is incredible. I know uh, you mentioned before some of the the charity streams that you have been doing. I think obviously people still care, and it's unfortunate that it has to come from this like very small like grassroots level when we, it feels like a lot of this support should be coming from the federal level, but I think it's uh, encouraging to know that so many people still care and are willing to take that into their own hands, you know, to, to make some change. Absolutely. I, I think it takes both. Honestly, I, I think I wish that these systems of mutual aid were more prevalent and more easily and more understood even when we didn't have a pandemic, right? Like a lot of times we talk about organizations that are, are out there taking care of stuff. And we, we know the big names, you know, Meals on Wheels or, you know, Goodwill or, you know, whatever. A lot of these organizations that have national presence and also sometimes issues. I would love to see more places have local support as well. How do you, you know, what is the, what's the policy that's going to be able to treat you know, insert number of tens or hundreds of thousands of people in Portland and and treat them with just as much efficacy as a community of a thousand people in Montana. Like you need small organizations that are on the ground and know the direct needs of the people that they're trying to serve. But you also need folks who can look at it from the 10,000 foot view and say, these are the ways that these communities are tied together and affect each other. This is why, for instance, like COVID policies, people are like, we don't have COVID transmissions. We don't need to have lockdown. And it's like, well, the thing is when somebody decides to travel from your no lockdown space to a space that does have a lockdown or vice versa, there's now an issue. That's what we're that's what we're seeing all over the country right now. Point of the story is if we're going to end on a happy note that <laughs> there are a bunch of people 
who are finding the ways to make the change at the scale they feel is best for them. There are some people who are going to be critical in making those high level 10,000 foot, you know, federal change, you know, systemic, whatever. And that's, and those are good. Those are necessary. There are also people who are going to be making change on the like, this is the individual way I take care of myself or the four people around me or the 10 people around me. Those are good. Those are necessary. I think it's so critical for us to have a, an understanding that like all positive change is important. And like, there might be some spaces where you can think like, well, I used to be able to do this, but maybe I can do this a little more. But for some people right now, just the act of surviving is pushing it. And I think that there are a lot of ways that we can appreciate each other and we can appreciate ourselves for the ways that we show resilience and compassion in the face of fear and potential devastation. So I'm very thankful for the ways that people have found opportunities to come together and the ways that people have, have looked to make change and to, to highlight some of the realities like, like this very podcast. I think that asking people to to be a bit vulnerable and to talk about the things that they're going through, but also highlight those strengths and the things that people can, can succeed in. I think it, it helps us all understand that we're all going through something, no matter how, how high up or far down we look on the outside. And I think that's, that's really important. So thank you for, for, I know this is an idea you've had cooking for a while. Thank you for, for bringing it to light. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you. Like, you, you put that probably better than I could have. And it's exactly what I'm trying to do is like everybody, everybody's going through their own thing. And I do, I, I feel that when people have the space and the ability to talk about the hard things they're going through in life, that sometimes that can be more relatable and just make people feel, you know, more human and uh, being able to relate to people and understand people is um, so incredibly important right now, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. I do want to give you a chance to, uh, to plug anything going on. I know you've mentioned IntelliGame. So, uh, where people, where can people find you? Goodness. Uh, yeah. So increasingly more places, uh, but I would say primarily, <laughs> um, IntelliGame is the, the site that I run the community, uh, that I'm, I'm thankful to be at the helm of the main website is IntelliGame.us. Uh, it has not had a ton of wet updates basically since COVID because yeah but uh where you can see a little bit more activity is on twitch uh we stream usually two to three times a week uh you can catch us when wednesdays at 6 p.m pacific time uh usually saturdays at 10 a.m pacific time and sundays at 1 p.m pacific time at twitch.tv slash intelligame us uh you can also uh find me on twitter at wallstormer or Intelligame Us is the is the website Twitter. And then, yeah, you can also see the work that I'm doing with Rowan and Ritzy and Hanako at Dual Wield Studio. Uh, that's D-U-A-L-W-I-E-L-D-S-T-U-D-I-O.com. I honestly am, am incredibly thankful to Rowan for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to work with Dual Wield because she, as a as a business owner, like her priorities of, you know, creating some equity in a space like merchandising, yo, merchandising is wild with a bunch of people who have a lot of money and not necessarily a whole lot of uh, progressive movement. 
Uh, so I, I really have a lot of respect for her mentality and her drive to make things better. And I've been able to learn from that a lot as an, uh, as a result. So if you're folks who are looking for merchandise to be made, I would recommend you, you give us a look as well. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And, um, we will have all of that in the show notes. So, um, if you weren't able to take notes, they will be easy to access. And yeah, thank you so much, Josh, for being on here. Every time you have a chance to talk, you bring up some really important points. Um, and yeah, I hope that uh, if anyone liked what we talked about here, they definitely need to, to give you a follow and check you out on Twitch because this is just you. This is you every time you stream and it's, uh, it's fantastic. So yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you giving me a space to uh, continue to wax poetic. But yeah, thank you. And thank you for being part of the community. Like you've been there from the beginning and, you know, can remember the old Anchor FM days when we uh, when we first connected. So, yeah, thank you for being a part of the community, for helping to shape what we're doing and for contributing to it. It's a, it's a really big part of what IntelliGame is today. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to Boss Fight. Please follow along on Instagram at Boss Fight Podcast, where you'll learn more about our guests and see artwork inspired by the show. Don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes automatically in your podcast player of choice. And remember, Game Over isn't the end. It's just another opportunity to get better.